Well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we got a special guest, a legendary performer, a legendary MC, the great and the only one named Mick Flair. Mick, how you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Gregory. Thank you very much. Man, yeah. you know, we haven't talked to you in a while. The last time I, I think I seen you was the last time there was a Battle of the Bands. Am I correct? That would, yes, that would have been in 2016. 2015, yep. man, that seems so long ago. It was so long ago. Yep. Um, 2016, four years ago. Amazing how time flies. You know, I'm going to cover, I want to talk about your life. I want to talk about your life, what you've done, because you've done so much. Uh, You're recognized all over California of who you are. Uh, You're you're just a dynamic individual. So let's get a little bit started. Mick, when was the first time, when did you know that you wanted to get into music? Tell me a little bit about that. I knew I wanted to get into music when I attended the Human BN on January 14th, 1967 at the Polo Fields in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. I had heard about this Human BN on the radio and that there were gonna be rock groups there. And so I got my junior high school gym sweatshirt and I got some model paint and I went ahead and put a peace sign on it and made my way out to the park. And when I got there, I saw the most people that I'd ever seen in my young 12 years of life. And at the far end of the park was the Grateful Dead on stage. And just being there, I knew something was happening. Just like the line in For What It's Worth, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. (laughs) And I just knew right then and there, I need to be a part of this. Wow. And so one year later, this guy, Tom Booth, came on our block. He was a few years older than the rest of us kids, and he assigned us all instruments. We were going to be a band. He was going to play bass, and then you know, one kid was going to be guitar, the other kid was going to be guitar, another kid was going to be drums. And then I said, what about me? And then he stopped and thought, and he said, you're the lead singer. <laughs> and that's where it started. And that was in uh, 1968. I was 14 years old. Wow, amazing. So you, you're from San Francisco? Yes, born and raised. So you're a big San Francisco 49er, San Francisco Giant fan, I assume. Sure, all the way. I yeah. know you are. So, Mick, you, you, did you get any bands when, when you were in high school? Or did you just, when did you start migrating over to the scene in Hayward? Or was there anything in between that time and your musical life in that time from 14 or 12 to when you came over to the Hayward scene? What made you gravitate over here? Well, my parents had heard that BART was going to be created. And so they bought a brand new track home in Fremont. And my dad was a muni bus driver. My mom was a switchboard operator for Crocker Bank. So they bought this brand new track home in Fremont and decided they were gonna be commuters. 
And so they uprooted the family on uh, April Fool's Day, 1972, when I was 17. Uh -huh. And at that time, I had already been in a couple of bands in San Francisco, uh, one in particular in 1970 called Beluga Whale. And we were a Grateful Dead cover band. And then at that time in 1972, I was playing in a band called Crisp, and we were actually rehearsing and based out of the Napa Valley up in St. Helena uh, on Howell Mountain. And so from there, I didn't come to the East Bay to join the family until that fall, the fall of 72, when my sister told me about some musicians at the new high school she was going to, the brand new American high school in Fremont. So she introduced me to Mike Tringali, Tony Lorenzo, Ed Elizaldi, Tom DeBenning, and uh, they were Primer Gray, and I became their lead singer. Wow. Wow. And, and, did, you, and did you guys perform around the area? We did. Uh, I think our first gig was at Thornton Junior High School in Fremont, right around Halloween 1972. In 1972. So, how did you get into becoming an MC at this particular time, which you were absolutely top of the line MC? What made you, how did you get into that situation? And you exploded on the scene all over the place. You were everywhere MCing. How did you get that opportunity? When we were in Primer Gray, we auditioned for the Hayward Teenage Battle of the Bands that was going to be held in January, 1973 at Chabot College. So we went to the audition at Sunset High School in Hayward mm -hmm. and going up in Mike Tringali's dad's station wagon with all the band gear. And we actually made the audition so that we could be on the big show. Mm -hmm. And so we performed at the Hayward Battle of the Bands. We played uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash. We played a, a new song off Santana Caravanserai, Just in Time to See the Sun and an original, which was kind of unheard of for kids you know, our age at that time, called Black Skies. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though we didn't place in the battle, that experience w was just indelible on my mind. And uh, I would end up coming back three years later to MC. They asked me to host it in 1976. But by that time, I'd been an MC for a year because Larry Catlin and his carriage company out in Fremont were starting to put on shows at the Center Theater. And he asked me if I would be the host because there was a band there that wanted an introduction and I gave them an introduction. And then the other bands wanted an introduction. And so I basically was channeling Bill Graham and Jerry Pompili yes. as they would introduce bands at Winterland. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and I loved how you did it. You introduced, we played it with, you just mentioned the carriage uh, company and they did with us with Pete. We played at the Center Theater a couple times, Y&T and Mile High and so many great bands, Sassy, et cetera. What is your, you talked, and you just talked about Two Legends, which we'll be going into a little bit later. What was your closeness? Because you were, when you'd go at Weeks Park, I've seen you do Weeks Park, I've seen you do Vets Hall, seen you do Center Theater. You were very close to Y&T and Leonard. It seemed like the mo you were closest to him the most. What it was, what gravitated you to them? And then you just, how you exuberated so much energy when you were introducing the band. Where did that all come from? 
Well, that came from an evening where Larry Catlin took me out to the UAW Hall in Fremont, mm -hmm. where Y&T, while they were still yesterday and today, they were doing a show at the UAW Hall on Valentine's Day, 1975. And he said, yeah, I want you to see this band. And I thought, you know what? I remember those guys. They auditioned for the battle the same year we did as Primer Gray, but yet they didn't make it and we did, which I never understood. And so here now they've really refined their act and show. And Larry said, well, I'm bringing them to the Center Theater on March 21st, and I'd like you to host the show. And I thought, sure, I'd be glad to. And uh, yeah, and uh, Staggerwing was also on that show with Ed Elizaldi, formerly of Primer Gray. Mm -hmm. Wow, a lot of history in there. So, and all the bands that you, you did all a lot of local bands, who could you say, and there's probably many of them, but who was really like with you um, going in different directions and then you're getting ready to go into the, when did you actually, you actually started with Bill Graham when? I started with Bill Graham on tax day, April 15th, 1977. Wow. And that all came about because I used to do a segment on a local Hayward cable program called South County Weekend. And they had a little segment called the Rock and Roll Report. Yes. And so I would do whatever shows were coming up in the Bay Area and do that as part of the segment. I would get the information for that segment by going to the new Bill Graham's Hayward Poster T-shirt store on Foothill Boulevard. And they had a Bass Ticket outlet there. And so I would go through the Bass Ticket Guide and garner the information and then come back and do my weekly segment. And because I spent so much time there and got to know how to work the bass machine, on that day in 1977, Pink Floyd Animals was to go on sale. The May 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, 1977 shows at the Oakland Coliseum. Well, the girl that was supposed to work that day called in sick at the last minute with strep throat. They called me out of a dead sleep and said, Mick, can you come out here and help us? You know, and I said, sure. So I was there in an hour. We sold that set of shows out in 45 minutes. Eventually, I became the only employee as they laid everyone else off. And so I ended up running the Bill Graham's Hayward poster and T-shirt store, which we call the Rocket Shop. And so my clock has been ticking since that day, 44 years ago. So you're telling me, you, then, you, then Mick, then you are the longest running employee ever, the uh, Bill Graham Productions and all of that right now? Yes, I am. I'm the longest tenured employee from what was once FM Productions, that became Bill Graham Presents, that became SFX Entertainment, that became Clear Channel Entertainment, and eventually morphed into what is now known as Live Nation. Unbelievable. Congratulations on such an illustrated career. And just like you just said, you've probably seen just virtually hundreds of, you've, you've read shoulders with so many, because I remember on Day on the Greens when they would have Day on the Greens and Bill was there. I remember sometimes you would either do security or you were always running around and you were such, you were one of the most colorful individuals. You wore bandanas, you wore shorts. You Tell me about your attire because you always look so different in so many different ways. What, when you get up in the morning, Mick, I mean, at that particular time, we're taking back back in history. I mean, you had some get-ups, brother. 
I mean, so tell me about that. I mean, your attire was all over the place, and it was it was great. You could tell that, who is that guy? Obviously, I knew you, but when people say they go, who is that? I go, that's Mick, you know? Do you know him? Yeah, you're always moving around very quickly. Tell me how you got to just dress how you dress. What, what inspired you to do all of that? What inspired me was the British rock scene. All those British rockers, you know, Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, who was, you know, based out of England at that time, you know, the Yardbirds, Led Zeppelin, all those groups would go to Carnaby Street and get all that attire that was very popular in the 60s. -hmm. And I remember seeing Jimi Hendrix on a flatbed truck in the Golden Gate Panhandle during the summer of 67, shortly before he went to Monterey Pop. And I loved the way he dressed and, and... when I saw the movie Monterey Pop, you could see Brian Jones and what he was wearing. And so by this time in 1975, obviously we didn't have a Carnaby Street in the East Bay, but we did have the Goodwill. And I would go to these thrift stores and peruse the racks and find all these very cool and colorful shirts and pants and scarves and things. And that's where I garnered my attire for what I did. And still to this day, that's great, man. I, hey, you know what? I'm going to have to start doing that then. You know, I mean, that's good. That's good knowledge. That is very good knowledge. So you, you joined up with a Bill Graham. Did you participate in any of the basketball games in Fillmore too? Or did you basically? No, no you didn't. No, I never did. Mm-hmm. Although I did get to play volleyball with Bill at his house, Masada, up in Corte Madera. And that was a daunting experience because Bill was very competitive, whether it be just playing for fun, which for him, fun meant winning. You know, Bill was just that way. So let's talk talk a little bit about your relationship with Bill. You knew him personally up front during the great times that, that was Fillmore, you know, all the ballrooms that he had, everything from Dan on the Green to you know, the great mega shows, uh, Winterland with the Stones, Stevie Wonder was the opening for the Stones, all of that. Tell me what it was like really to work for Bill Graham as a person and as a, a fellow employee, but I, he looked at you really as family. Tell me about all that. Yes, he really did. You know, there was a point where I thought that Bill didn't know who I was or what I did, but that couldn't have been further from the truth because I used to send Bill letters saying that I wanted to MC, I wanted to be like him and Jerry Pompili and introduce the bands. Because I realized, you know, that they were busy guys and that was just one of the things they did. And so I was always offering up my services and I would send him every flyer from every local Hayward show. And so he got a sense of who I was, but it was only until I actually became an employee and especially working security in... uh, March of 1979, there was a counterfeit ticket um, problem at the Day on the Greens. And at that time, the Bill Graham's Rock Shop had closed. I was now working at Bass Tickets at their main office in Oakland on 22nd Street. And so one of Bill Graham's bookers, Danny Scher, fired off a letter to the owner, Jerry Seltzer of Bass, saying that they had traced these counterfeit tickets being printed on Bass ticket stock and that he needed to get to the bottom of this. So unbeknownst to me, Jerry sends off a letter back to Danny saying, we're going to put Mick on the detail to try 
to find out where these are coming from and put an end to it. And so they CC'd me on that. And, you know, me being young and, and brash, I was like, sure, I can do this. So we put together a crew of ticket checkers and we would go along the line that lined out the night before at the Oakland Coliseum Stadium. And so I figured out the way to tell the difference between a fake ticket and a real ticket. I said, you have to pretend you're Stevie Wonder. You have to close your eyes, run your fingers across the ticket. If you don't feel anything, it's fake because a bass ticket comes out of a machine that's being stamped. And so it's almost like reverse braille. If you don't feel that indentation, it's fake. And nobody else had ever figured that out. So once we found the fake tickets and traced them back to a ring that was selling them out at the 66th Street and Highway 17, that's before it became 880. We went down there with some Bill Graham blue coats and Oakland PD. We busted the ring and put an end to that. And it was at that point that I asked Bob Barsotti, I said, I want to be a blue coat. I want to work with you guys. I want a, I want a job. And so on August 4th, 1979, I was hired to work Funk on the Green at Oakland Stadium. Then later that day, they sent me over to the Oakland Auditorium to work the Grateful Dead and then to do overnight security. And so that's when I became a Bill Graham Presents Blue Coat doing security, which I did for 14 years until 1992. Wow. So you, that, that's an amazing story how you found out about those tickets. That's, that's classic. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to veer in just a little bit. I'm going to ask you some questions. And this is kind of might be very sad for you, but what was it like? Because Bill was such a huge figure nationwide, worldwide, really, because he had all the major acts and all that. And he was the East, West Coast, uh, North, South, wherever. When you heard the news that night on that rainy night when Bill, um, you know, left us all, what did you feel inside? How, how hard was that to actually one of our greatest promoters, entrepreneurs, whatever. What, 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 through, what went through your mind at that time? What, what did you feel? Because Bill was gone. Bill, it was really sad for a lot of us, all of us really, but what, how did that affect you? Well, honestly, there's a backstory to that okay. uh, leading up to the point that I was not able to fully process mm -hmm. what had happened okay. that night. Mm -hmm. um, six months prior to that, in March of 1991, I had an accident of my own in Hayward where my wall heater had malfunctioned and I essentially was breathing in carbon monoxide for six hours while I was sleeping. Oh my and through a dream that I was having where I was hovering above myself saying, dude, if you don't wake up, we're out of here. And I was thinking, oh, what do you mean we? And this dream seems a little too creepy. And so on the count of three, I'm gonna sit straight up in the bed, come out of the stream. And when I did, I was so out of it and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I had reported my wall heater to my apartment manager a few days before. Well, short story is he had hooked it back up himself, made it worse, did not tell me that PG&E had condemned my wall heater. And so he essentially caused that. Mm. So I was in a semi-comatose state for nearly two years after that. So it was only six months later on October 25th, 1991, when Bill's helicopter went down, I got the call that Saturday morning. Now, the night before, 
Bill had been, I, by this time, I was the assistant office manager, which I began on May 1st, 1990. So a year, almost a year into my tenure as the assistant office manager, one of my jobs was to relieve the switchboard receptionist for her lunch breaks and for a half an hour at the end of the night. So I'm watching Bill go back and forth from his office to the front lobby, picking up the San Francisco Chronicle and kind of mumbling to himself, I could see his wheels turning. He was trying to figure out how he could help the victims of the Oakland fire, which occurred only a week before that in early October. Yes. And so with that, I could see he was trying to work on a benefit or some way to have a philanthropic input to that. Well, when he left that night, I said, good night, chief. Be careful out there. It's really storming. And him and his helicopter pilot, Steve Kahn, and his girlfriend, Melissa Gold had traveled from Shoreline Amphitheater via the helicopter out to the Concord Pavilion. He was offered a ride by Bill Brown mm -hmm. or Bob Brown, the manager of Huey Lewis and the News, mm -hmm. but he turned it down. He said, no, we'll be fine to fly. And as it turns out, they were not. No. So that Saturday morning, I get a phone call from a fellow blue coat telling me that he thought that Bill didn't make it home last night and neither did Steve. So I called Steve's house and instead of his wife, Roseanne answering, it was Pat Thomas from Bill Graham Management. And right then and there, I knew something was wrong. And I said to Pat, please tell me this is not true. She said, yeah, it's true. So I put on some Grateful Dead, got in the shower, got dressed, drove to the office and was met with all the media and grieving family members and employees. Mm. And because of my own inability to be able to process what had happened, mm -hmm. still to this day, I still don't have the full uh, recognition of that. But yeah, that was pretty intense. Mm -hmm. So I ended up spending the night in the office that night, listening to K-Fog as they played tributes to Bill mm -hmm. and surrounded by all these flowers and things. I still to this day can't stand the smell of gardenias and lilies, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that's... That's what I went through that day. Jesus. So let's let's get up on a happier note. The Battle of the Bands have been very close to you, and you've been a uh, a pillar at the Battle of the Bands. How many Battle of the Bands were you involved in it for the longest running Battle of the Bands in the world? How long did you do that? Forty two years. I have a special uh, a special moment with you. Obviously, you know I did a couple of judging and things like this, but I wanted to tell you. One night you came out and you sang Stairway to Heaven a cappella. That, my brother, was probably one of the best times I ever seen anybody do an a cappella, and you did it to a rousing crowd after, before and after. It was a great ovation. I wanted to always compliment you on that because, as you know, that is one of the hardest songs to sing, and you nailed it. You. Oh, my God. I had totally forgotten about you almost just brought me to tears as I thought about that. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, the backstory on that was one of the bands was having a malfunction yes. behind the curtain. And, and, and I all of a sudden get the, the guy that raises the curtain. Um, Gene, mean Gene, the stage manager, is doing the stretch sign with his hands. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? And I went, my brain just said, go out and do something. So I explained to the crowd that we were going to have a, a little delay and that I'd like to do something special for them. And so my mind went into autopilot 
and I broke into stairway and did the whole damn thing. And it finally says, okay, we're ready, we're ready. And that applause still gives me a shiver to this day. You kicked ass. <laughs> you kicked, you nailed that, my brother. You're the only person I've ever, I've seen Plant do it twice. I've never seen Plant do it acapella like you. And I, I, I wish somebody to have a recording of it, but you nailed it, my brother, to sing that song. Uh, in a time of distress, it was it, it was classic and it was it was wonderful. So you did forty. You said for, over forty something years. Forty three. Well, actually, actually forty because I did the first. My first one was Battle of the Bands number thirteen okay. in nineteen seventy six, mm -hmm. and the very final show mm -hmm. was in uh, twenty sixteen. So I did forty one. Wow, amazing! Right. Let's talk about something that we're we're both close to, and that's our bands that we've been in. I've always liked the your band that is what was it called, um, Dog Beaver. Oh yeah, the Beave. <laughs> you know when I when I hear that band, I think of that I'm a dog and I'm looking at beavers. You remember we used to call beavers the, well, the beautiful part of a woman. But anyhow, I mean, what got you? What is basically the the what was behind that? Because you guys were kind of like a little bit ahead of your time, a little bit slanted, very, uh, very imp improvisation. You did a lot of stuff. Tell me about that band. Is it still going? It is. We are now in our 31st year together. Wow. We started in, uh, on February 5th, 1989, purely by accident. My co-founder and myself, Kenny Briggs, we were assigned to do an overnight security stint at the Oakland Auditorium. Uh, by that time, it was called the Henry J. Kaiser Auditorium yes. for the Grateful Dead. Yes. They were supposed to have a pre-rigged load-in. They decided not to. So all there was was an empty stage. But they still wanted us to be there in case someone had snuck into the building, fell off the stage, broke their neck, and tried to see the company. So we were essentially watching nothing. Knowing that, I brought two synthesizers and my four track recorder, my Tascam Porta One. Kenny and I stayed up all night making these improvisational synthesizer pieces, giving them fake titles like March of the Giant Cockroaches and so on. We did three distinct pieces and we started playing them for people and people were getting off to it. Go, wow, this is pretty good. And we we're like, we're just messing around. As it turned out, there were other security guys working with us that we found out played instruments. So we added Mike Whitwer on guitar, and then he introduced us to his old bandmate, Mike Thompson on drums. Now we we're a four. Then we picked up Gary Lambert who played bass. Now we were five. And we actually started just jamming at my house in Hayward. Then within a year's time, the husband of one of the gals in the accounting department, Maggie Penatelli tells us about her husband, Tom, and she says, he's one of my top favorite guitar players of all time. I'm like, whoa, whoa, you mean like Hendrix, Clapton, Page, Beck? She goes, yeah. And I go, well, we got to hear this guy. Have Tom come and play with us. Well, the first time he played with a sight unseen was the Bill Graham Christmas party of 1990 held at the Warfield Theater in the basement, in the speakeasy. And Bill himself watched us play that night. So the beef was off and running. We were now a full-fledged band. And here we are, 31 years later, still at it. Wow. A great story. Great story. So, Mick, we're getting uh, closer to our time. 
I want you to do, if you can, I want you to name me your five, before we close, I want you to name me your five top rock bands or a blues band. Name me your five bands that you like, just five. Tell me five, the five great bands that you like. Okay, we're going to start with my first great love, number five, from 1967, The Jefferson Airplane. At 13 years old, I was so in love with Grace Slick. My very first album was Serialistic Pillow. Hearing Somebody to Love and White Rabbit that year that I turned 13 during the summer of love changed me forever. Number four, also from 1967, The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Fully changed my life, the way I listened to music and approached music. Number three, The Who. Seeing The Who at the Cow Palace, also in 1967. Wow. Amazing. Roger Daltrey. I wanted to be Roger Daltrey. Wow. Number two, Led Zeppelin. When they came out in 1969 with that debut album, Babe, I Want to Leave You. I mean, I heard that voice. Oh, how many more times? Mm-hmm. All the, And Paige's guitar with who I'd love from the Yardbirds. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And my number one band of life still to this day, and I just listened to this guy play today. He was complaining that people were complaining that the YouTube videos he does every night that he uses effects and plays to uh, background tracks. He decided to answer his critics and not use any effects and just play dry, which he didn't really like, but he did it anyway. And it was awesome. And my favorite guitar player of life and my favorite band of life still to this day, ever since I first heard that album in 1975, thanks to Ed Elizalde, Journey. Wow. What, what, a top, what a top five there. Mick, we could go on for hours and hours. I'm going to ask you to come back again in the future. You are just a low because I really wanted to talk about Jerry Pompili. We're going to try to get Jerry on. Uh, Jerry and I are friends, uh, and we're going to try to get Jerry on. I know he lives, I think he lives in San Anselmo, and I'm trying to get, I'm going to try to get Jerry. But Mick, it's such a pleasure and it's such an honor to have you on our podcast, on Harmonics Podcast. I wish you nothing but the best. You are, have you ever thought about writing a book of all your experiences? I have. I've had the title for many years now, mm-hmm. and it's called Through My Eyes, Tales of a Rock and Roller. Well, I hope that comes to you. I hope you make that happen a reality. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, Mick, you're one of the best. You're a, a music ambassador to the Bay Area. I'd like to thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll be chatting again. And uh, God bless you, and... Uh, We'll catch up with each other in a couple days, and I'll get, let you know when we uh, get this all done for you, okay? Yes, indeed. You're so very welcome, Gregory. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate your friendship through all these years. I appreciate what you're doing now with all of us and, and keeping the rock and roll alive. Yes, indeed, my friend. Much love to you, Gregory. Much love Much to love you, to too. You out there. Peace and love to Take you, brother. Care, awesome. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you.